Okay, we're reading from John chapter 6, verse 35 to 51. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. <clears throat> All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Folks, we're exploring, started this in this teaching series, we're exploring how we experience God's sovereignty and grace in our salvation. And we're thinking, we know we experience it, we're trying to dig into some of the practicalities, the process. Last Sunday, we established our starting point in Ephesians chapter 2. And there was two simple points come out of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Uh, the first one is that by nature, people are in a state of spiritual deadness. When they're born, in, in our natural born state, our spiritual DNA, if you wanted to call it that, uh, has us hardwired to rebel against God. Uh, it's pretty, pretty confronting sort of teaching, isn't it, from the Bible? Uh, and then we saw the state of sin that we're born in inevitably gives rise to acts of sin or rebellion. Because we're born in a state of sin and rebellion, then we give expression to that in acts of sin and rebellion. And though a person may not realize it, by nature, says the Bible, we're so radically affected by sin at every point of their being that we're totally 
unwilling and unable to respond to God as he intends us to. A terrible plight. But then we also saw last week that into that very plight, God acts sovereignly. Ephesians 2, 4 says, and God made you alive. That's what God does with spiritually dead people in the act of salvation. He makes them alive. Purely and completely as an act of his grace. Nobody deserves it. Nobody can earn it. Nobody can command it. It is purely and completely as an act of God's grace that God takes dead spiritual people, spiritually dead people, and makes them alive. In other words, he does for people what they could never ever do for themselves. Changes their spiritual DNA, creating new desire, new ability to be the image bearers he created us to be and intended us to be. This morning, I want to dig into how this process of being made alive actually works in, in our experience. So here's a question and a scenario to get you thinking about how this process of being made alive actually works. <clears throat> the question is this, why does any given person become a Christian? Why does any given person become a Christian? Well, you might say, well, that's, that's an easy question. Uh, they, make, they become a Christian because they hear the message of salvation in Jesus, and against that, they decide they want to be a Christian. They make a decision in response to what they hear. So here's the scenario then. At two friends, Fred and Barney. They get, go to hear a talk about Jesus as a guest of another friend. So Fred and Barney are there. Each hears the same message. Each hears that they are rebels before God and without hope and without God in this world. Each hear that Christ's death was to rescue them, was to save them from the, 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 the guilt and the consequence of their sin. Uh, and each hears the urgent plea of the preacher to turn to Jesus and find life. And each of Fred and Barney responds. Fred becomes a Christian. He recognizes suddenly his desperate need for Christ, his plight before God, and his desperate need of salvation that could only come from God. And he expresses a sudden new determination to give up autonomy and to live life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And in the same instant, Barney also makes a decision. He thinks that's the biggest lot of rubbish he'd ever heard. And he was really annoyed at his friend for wasting a whole evening. Now, clearly each response involves a real choice driven by conscious desires. But here's the question behind the question. Where did Fred get his desire from? Why did he recognize his desperate need while his longtime friend Barney, standing beside him, simply got offended? Uh, it seems to me there's only two real alternatives to explain it. Either 
Fred's desire came from within himself. That is, Fred was uh, more intelligent. Uh, Fred listened better. Fred understood better. Uh, and so he used his native abilities better and come to a better conclusion than Barney. At first glance, you might think, well, that, that's, that's obviously what did happen. But when you dig into that and look at Barney, then you think, well, actually, no, it doesn't work because Barney also heard. Barney also understood enough to be offended, to reject. So Barney's response was equally as strong, but totally different. Barney's rejection was also on the basis of intelligent understanding. Barney wouldn't accept that God had a problem with him, nor would he accept that he had a problem with God. The only other alternative, my friends, is, at least I believe, the only other alternative is what the Bible teaches, the Bible's answer. That is, Fred's desire... The thing that made Fred a Christian, brought him to being a Christian, was something that came from outside of himself. As the Bible says, it came as a sovereign work of God in Fred's life. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that a person becomes a Christian when God acts decisively in them, creating both desire and ability to respond to the message of Jesus. Now, the biblical terminology for this, in, in terms of classic theology terms, is the effectual call of God. And if you're following through on the notes, you'll see that term written down there. The word effectual is something that we don't use much these days, but it's the same word as effective. So you could just read the effective call of God. In other words, when God calls people, it's always effective, it always works. It's irresistible in terms of historic uh, theology. The effective or irresistible call of God. And it's another key aspect of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation, and ultimately explains why and how a person becomes a Christian. And that's what I want to jump into a little bit this morning, making two points. Firstly, is the Bible teaches both the fact and necessity of God's effectual call. In short, the Bible teaches that God saves sinners. Now, the fact of God's powerful calling is established throughout the Bible. Uh, and every time you see God's calling, or it's described, or you, or, you, or you see it in action in somebody's life, it's a practical display of God's intervention in a person's life in an absolutely sovereign way. And it results every time in uh, renewing, uh, renewing and reorientating a person's life and relationship with God. And so if you track through the Old Testament, you can see it in lots of places. Abraham was called by God while he was just away off in the distance getting on with his own life, minding his own business. He was called by God. Uh, disciples were called by God while they were um, ill-educated, uneducated, illiterate fishermen. And they were transformed as a result of that call. Uh, Paul was particularly called by God when he was actively rebelling against Jesus and trying to destroy anything to do with Jesus in the church. He was called by God, radically renewed and reoriented to the things of God and to relationship with God. So each of those was a display of God's sovereign 
creative power, love, and purpose. God intervenes in the lives of individuals. He establishes new relationship with them and he radically changes their orientation of these individuals towards himself. How does he do that? Because he renews their hearts. He renews their attitudes. He renews their desires. He gives them both the ability and the desire from the inside out. That's the fact of God's effectual call. The necessity of God's effective call is also taught in John chapter 6. So we're going to jump into a few verses, and I'm not going to spend lots of time in these, uh, this passage. I just want to lift out some verses uh, that's, that say the things I want, I want you to hear this morning. So the context of John chapter 6, and we're picking the story up at the verse 35, is that Jesus has fed miraculously this huge crowd. And he's speaking to the crowd afterwards. And what he does is he bluntly, Jesus bluntly accuses the crowd of being interested in him, but not true disciples. He says, effectively he sent him, you guys are following me for opportunistic reasons. You're not really following me because you see who I am and you see your need to be engaged with me as God and Savior. They didn't see him as the source of spiritual life. And if you look at verse 36 and verse 37, Jesus responds fairly harshly to them. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. In other words, you can see me physically with your eyes, but you can't really see me spiritually through your hearts. You can't see my significance. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The fact that this whole crowd are, is not really believing him, is not really seeing him as he truly is, doesn't faze Jesus at all. In fact, in these verses, he responds quite positively. He said, there will be some who believe. This crowd, the vast majority, aren't those people, but there will be some who believe. And they are guaranteed life and salvation. How are they described here? How is this group who will believe? They're described as all that the Father gives me will believe. Now, the story continues, and Jesus' response initially offends the crowd even further. They're religious people, and they're deeply offended that Jesus would suggest they don't have a living, vibrant relationship with God. And so Jesus speaks even more bluntly to them in response, verse 43 and 44. <clears throat> so the idea that verse 41, the Jews grumbling about him, that's the idea of being really deeply offended and angry. How dare Jesus speak to us like that? We are religious people. We are Jews. Verse 43, <clears throat> Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word is also calls me, calls him. And I will raise him up at the last day. No one is able to, says Jesus, 
No one has within themselves the power to come to Jesus or respond to Jesus as God and Savior unless Jesus powerfully and sovereignly in their lives gives them that ability, gives them that desire. Drawing them or calling them to himself. Now Romans 8, 28 to 30 makes the same point. Uh, and we're told there, those who are first loved by God and called according to his purpose and salvation. There you go, that word call again. God's work of salvation from start to finish. First loved, then called, ultimately saved. So the fact of God's call is simply and easily discerned in scripture. How do we respond to it? Well, can I suggest to you this morning that this is a wonderful truth to discover. There's nothing to fear in understanding and discovering how God works in a person's life, how God has worked in your life if you're a Christian. See, because what it means is that God speaks of God's character and that God pursues his sinless, lifeless people. By definition, if you're dead in your sins, you, you, you can't do a thing. You're just lying there. You're just immobile. That's the whole picture of a corpse. Well, against that bleakness, we have a picture of God pursuing his, sin, his um, spiritually deadened people, pursuing them until he has made them alive. It's a wonderful picture. He knows, God knows that unless he moved towards us, we would never, of our own abilities, have moved towards him. By definition, we're dead, we're corpses, spiritually unresponsive. We would not move towards God, we could not move towards God because we, are not, we were by nature spiritually dead towards him. And so likewise, God knew that it would never be enough simply to send Jesus into this world to atone, to pay for the penalty for our sin, to redeem us from the power of sin. It would never be enough for Jesus just to do that and as it were, set it on the table and say, okay, it's over here, guys. Come and, come and help yourselves when you want to. God knew it would never be enough. Why? Because we wouldn't want to help ourselves. We wouldn't be able to help ourselves. No, God knew that he had to bring salvation to us and not only that, but he had to make it effective in us by his sovereign power. He brings Jesus to us and he calls us to Jesus. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture. God actually and effectively applies the benefits of the death of Christ to individuals like you and me by working powerfully inside us. This is not a truth to fear, my friends. This is a truth that should prompt us to say, all glory be to God. All glory be to God. What manner of love is this? 
that God should move towards us, pursue us, even while we're so busy rejecting him. Second point I want to make this morning is, is the mechanics or the process of God's effective call. That is, how does God make people alive? Well, put simply, uh, God's call in its entirety is the process that we call conversion. And the Bible uses various terms in this zone of conversion, terms like the new birth, regeneration, adoption, or union with Christ. Now, there's a number of terms and others that are inseparably linked, but not altogether identical realities. There are shades of difference between each of those terms, but essentially they come together to describe what we would call conversion. Each describes a spiritual fresh start. Each describes a radical new creation, a, a resurrection from spiritual deadness to spiritual liveness, to new relationship with God. And each of those things is a one-off event that we experience in our innermost being. This is something God does, and as a result of these one-off things, we are new in Christ. And together, they deliver us into this new life, which is an ongoing reality. So one-off events there, ongoing reality, which is the life we live as Christians. And that life is expressed in another conglomerate of terms that we come across in the, in the Bible. Uh, repentance, faith, being sanctified or, or growing more like Jesus as we continue in the life of, of uh, service. Discipleship, loving the brethren, and so on and so forth. There's a whole heap of terms there that come together to describe the struggle of living as Christians, having been once off made alive. So, focusing on this part, how does God's call actually work or happen in a person's life? Well, to, that, to do that, I just want to illustrate uh, through John chapter 3. Remember that famous uh, interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. And you remember the context, Jesus came, uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus came as a religious professor. He was a guy who taught others about the detail of God's word and God's salvation plan in history. He came as a very educated man. He came as a man who was deeply religious and deeply interested in Jesus. He came to learn more about Jesus. He loved God. And he assumed that because of all the religious things he had been doing over his lifetime, that God would love him. But Jesus King hits him, not just once, but twice. In verse 3 and verse 6, I'm not going to get into the text, you can look at it for yourself later. Jesus King hits him by saying this, and this is a man who spent his whole life serving God. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to be reborn. You need to be regenerated if you are to be saved. His religious life 
spent teaching about God and serving him did not mean acceptance before God or by God. He needed, as Jesus said, to be born of water and the Spirit. Now, there's lots could be said about that. I'm just going to give a very quick summary. Water and Spirit, you know, they're both pictures from the Old Testament of renewal and purity, purification. Nicodemus, this is what you're like on the outside, a religious man, but on the inside, you still need something, a refreshment. You need a renewal. You need something reborn. You need regenerated on the inside. What's on the outside won't get in in the way that you need it. You need something new on the inside, which will flow out in a new way. And so the new birth is a picture or metaphor in Nicodemus's life for the radical renewal that God must effect if a spiritually dead person is to be saved. They don't come any more pure and religious from a human point of view than did Nicodemus. But Jesus said, no, on the inside, you need renewing. Desires, attitude, and heart. In verse 8, Jesus declares that to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And again, uses picture language. The work of the Holy Spirit, says Jesus in verse 8 of John chapter 3, it's a bit like the wind. You know the wind is real, but you can't actually see it. Jesus is saying, when I'm talking to you, Nicodemus, about this need for a rebirth, this something that on the inside, refreshment, purification on the inside, then it's the work of the Holy Spirit, which like the wind is real, but unseen. So in summary then, how does it all work? Well, firstly, there's an outward call of the gospel. That is what you and I experience. We hear somebody speak or we read about the work of Jesus. We're, we're confronted at some point in some form or other by the work of Jesus, by the fact that we need to be saved, by the fact that we're in a spiritually desperate situation before God, by the fact that Jesus came into the world particularly to solve the problem, to rescue us, to give us new life, if only we will trust in him. That's the outward call of the gospel. Fred and Barney heard the outward call of the gospel. But there's also an inward call of God. It also is real, but unseen, because it happens in our innermost being. And historically, this has been called the quickening of the spirit. Now, the quickening is an old-fashioned word again. It was a word that used to be used to describe the moment a, a, a mum felt her baby kicking in the womb. It was the first signs of life in those days when they didn't have um, all the scans and stuff they, they, they now have. The quickening of the spirit used to describe the first time we sense that God has touched our lives and brought life to us previously spiritually dead people. In other words, it's the time when God acts sovereignly to change our heart, to change our attitudes, to change our desires, to change a person giving them what they need to engage with Jesus. 
and to embrace Jesus as a saviour he says he is. So the quickening of the spirit is God's sovereign activity in the life of a person, giving them a, a level of understanding, a spiritual living, a level of understanding that previously they'd, they'd heard the words, but they didn't grasp the deep significance for them personally. And when they grasp that deep, deep significance, then suddenly all the pieces of the jigsaw fall into place and Fred collapses in tears. On the one hand, so aware of his plight before God. On the other hand, tears of joy that God would, would, would presume to save him and lift him out of that. And Barney, he's just, what an idiot. Both heard the outward call of the gospel. Only Fred experienced the inward call of the spirit. Giving him eyes to see and ears to hear in a way that it hadn't previously done. And when God's spirit acts in this way, in this real internal unseen way, then the result is always life, always renewal in the person. The Bible is clear that God's effect of calling by definition is effective. God's spirit cannot and will not be rejected or resisted. Why can he? Because he's affecting the purpose and command of God to bring his dead people to life, to bring them into the kingdom so they might be safe with them forever. Now, when we talk about this effectual calling, this sovereign work in of the spirit in a person's life, we shouldn't think of a, a, a brutality like the work of a, a rapist. Now that's not what the Bible describes it. it. It's the gentle wooing. It's the drawing of a lover that so changes the attitudes and, and desires that when a person becomes a Christian at that particular moment in their, in their outside form, that's precisely what they want to do. In fact, there's nothing else they, they can think of they would like to do. And I know that many of you out there have experienced that moment in your own lives. That's how it was for Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. I've always, well, not always, but for the last 30 or 40 years, I've always loved this little phrase when the, when the Lord describes how Lydia was converted, converted. It says, the Lord opened her heart to believe that which she had heard. The Lord opened her heart. It's such a beautiful, tender, yet strong concept. The first desiring, the first stirring of desire to find salvation in Jesus for Lydia was the result of the Spirit's work, unseen work within her. She also was part of a crowd. And that stirring of the Spirit, that quickening of the Spirit resulted in her external response of trust, repentance, and faith. And we can see the contrast in Lydia's life. Go, go and read it for yourself in Acts chapter 16. Just as when dead in sin, her natural choice would have been to hear God's word and reject it, a la Barney. 
So now for Lydia, with a gentle, powerful work of the Spirit, she acts on a new desire she finds within herself. A desire to respond, a desire to love and serve Jesus, a desire to go to him for the forgiveness she now realizes she needs. And this new orientation, this new orientation to Jesus, these new desires, these new attitudes, are foolproof evidence of the new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within her. And with Fred. And with so many here this morning. Now friends, in the last couple of minutes, let me, let me just mention three wonderful assurances which come, which flow from this truth. First one is this. In our personal daily struggle to serve Jesus. Now, when you become a Christian, you realize that life actually gets a whole lot harder. Before you were a Christian, you didn't really care about what you did and the consequence of what you did, unless you might think, well, I'll try and not, not run foul of the law. But wherever you see a person responding to the word of God, that is trusting Jesus for the new life they desperately need, where you see them struggling to master their sin and trust in God, where they become more and more aware of their sin and more and more desperate to be free from sin and, and live the life of obedience and purity that they want to live under the Lord Jesus. When you see that, then you can be sure that you're seeing and experiencing a person who's been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. Because those desires are the reflection and the evidence of the Spirit's work within you. We often get it the other way around. We often think that because we struggle in the Christian life that that's evidence that we're not, we're not right with God. That's quite the opposite. You, you go and look at your non-Christian friends and tell me how many of them are actually so concerned about their state before God in the, in the way they're living. It just doesn't happen. And yet Christians are sometimes crippled by that concern. Why such a profound awareness of their sin? Because of the Spirit's renewing power. The things of the Spirit, Romans 8, give rise, sorry, the Spirit gives rise to the things of the Spirit. Secondly, we can be relaxed in, in, in terms of our evangelism, we can be relaxed and confident as we speak about Jesus and long to see them saved as we ourselves have been saved. Very practical truth at this point. And here's how evangelism works. God calls us to do what we can do, and that is issue the outward call of the gospel. God calls us to speak about Jesus. We don't have to make it up. We just transmit it. We just, we're the conduit of telling people about Jesus. That's the outward call of the gospel. And then we can relax <clears throat> knowing that God will do what only he can do. And that is issue the inward call of changing somebody's hearts and desires and attitudes. I can't change somebody's attitudes. So I can, in evangelism, be confident to do what God asked me to do simply speak about Jesus and relax and let God do what only he can do. 
And that is take those words with the power of the Holy Spirit and make them into life in a person's soul. Boy, that takes a lot of pressure off. It takes a lot of pressure off. I just have to concentrate on telling people. And that's not hard to do. I'm excited about that. And let God do what only he can do. And thirdly, we can luxuriate in the sweetness of God's glory and grace. It's just lovely to know as we struggle with sin on a daily basis that God's sovereign purpose will have the last word in our world and in our life, not sin. When C.S. Lewis was converted, he wrote of how he fought a tooth and nail against God and against any idea of becoming a Christian. He tried to be rid of all that God stuff, but he says that all that God stuff just wouldn't go away. It just pestered him. And in a sense, he felt himself being worn down until one night, he says, it all came to a crunch for him and he kneeled in prayer in his room at Oxford and simply confessed that God was God. And in that moment, he then wrote later that he thinks he might have been the most reluctant Christian in all of history. Not that he saying that God was, in a sense, twisting his arm and dragging him in the kingdom against his will, but just expressed how much he fought against God's pursuit of him. And he writes the words, he writes that the words of Jesus in one of Jesus' well-known par parables go out and compel them to come in. He meditated in those words, compel them to come in, and he said they were so sweet to him because that was how he experienced God's grace. He says there was a beautiful, gentle irresistibility about God's grace that was quite necessary to bring him to life and repentance and faith and life. A life lived in service of the Lord Jesus Christ from that point forward. He knows that had he been left to his own devices, he would simply have rejected anything he heard. He even tried to do that. But that gentle, compelling irresistibility were sweet words of grace in C.S. Lewis's mind that the Lord pursued him all the way into the kingdom. Friends, very, very simply, I'm just going to divide you now into two groups. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, and, and sad to say there's some here in that category, at least as far as I can discern humanly, if you're not yet a believer, pray for this gentle, irresistible experience of God's grace. God's pursuing you. God loves you. If you are a Christian here this morning, and there's many of us, thank, thank, thank the Lord for that, then savor this sweetness of God's grace and glory. Savor it daily. And from that point, ask the question, how then do you want me to live? as one who shows deep and consistent appreciation for your love 
and your grace in my life. Let me pray. Lord, it's a strange thing that sometimes we fear studying your character, lest it be overwhelming and too confronting for us. And yet, on every page of your Bible, Lord, we see you repeating over and over again that your first desire is to bless your people. Your first desire is to give life to your people. Your last resort is to bring condemnation and judgment to people. Lord, I pray that we might see your character for all its positivity, for all its love, for its grace, and that we might truly savour that truth of your sovereign intervention in our lives, that sweet but compelling and irresistible move of your spirit within us to move us from death to life, first of all, and then move us from that new life to a, a lifetime of growing consistency and serving you. Help us in our daily struggle, Lord, because sometimes it doesn't feel like that on a day-to-day -day basis. Help us to be aware of our sin. Help us to lament our sin. Help us to be determined to move away from our sin. But Lord, help us also not to get caught up by our sin as though somehow or other an awareness for sin and a sense of failing is evidence that we're not saved. Help us, Lord, to see that, that this also is evidence of your spiritual renewal within us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It wasn't an early mark, but hopefully it might have been profitable. Thank you. <laughs>